Hello. Again. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Not that you had much of a choice, I suppose, but uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I want to uh, so send my greetings from SLE Church. Um, it's been a, a long time, again, since we've really kind of connected over the years, um, but it's really good to be here. Uh, the last time I stood on a pulpit, uh, not of CPE, because it wasn't called that, was about 16 years ago. Uh, I was a young worker, uh, and somehow they let the leash loose, uh, letting us young people preach. Uh, during the time when Pastor Mark wasn't quite here yet and he was just starting uh, at Rochdale, it was kind of us young people that, that taught God's word uh, along with other guest speakers. Uh, and it was a really interesting experience, uh, but something that was very formative uh, in my time as a, as a minister. So it's really great to be back, uh, brings back old memories. I see lots of uh, old faces uh, from those years and plenty of new ones as well. And I hope to be able to have a chance to, to meet you guys uh, over the morning and in the future. Now, it seems that for some of us that know each other, um, the, the times that we get to meet each other in recent years have really been at funerals, haven't they? A lot of you I've seen recently, uh, mainly at funerals. Uh, we've had a lot of grief uh, at SLE Church uh, over the last few years, especially since uh, 2011. For some reason, the, the Brisbane floods seem to have kicked off uh, a seven-year period where SLE in particular has felt uh, the weight of grief and suffering. And I know some of you have shared that with us uh, in our church. Um, yeah, it began with, uh, I guess, in 2011 when our, my daughter died. So she was born uh, very sick, uh, and she passed away after a few days. Uh, and since then, we've had a whole heap of deaths that are not, not really due to old age, if you put it that way. I mean, dying from old age is, is also sad, uh, but for some reason, SLE Church, we've had to deal with so many premature, untimely um, deaths. Uh, we've had uh, Uncle Mike and his grandson, Isaac. Many of you know him. Uh, we had his funeral not long after ours. Uh, we've grieved uh, Philbert's passing. Uh, Uncle Paul and Auntie Daisy have come today to support me as I represent SLE. Uh, Debbie, you all know. Um, we, we mourn Philbert's untimely death. He was... 45, I think he was, 42. Um, <clears throat> the, I think the day after Philbert's death, we got news that Mark, uh, another 42-year-old man in our church with two young boys, he died after a year-long battle with cancer. And that wasn't long after Elder Johnson uh, passed away. Many of you know him. Simeon and Esther, his kids, go to our church. Uh, we mourn with them. Uh, over the years, we've uh, had... Uh, a sister whose mom committed suicide. Uh, we've had another sister just two months ago, Anna. Uh, Anna Wong passed away from pancreatic cancer at 55, uh, leaving behind two uni-age, young working-age children. Uh, we've had a lot of grief and suffering. Right? It seems an inordinate amount given our small community. But it hasn't just been death and sickness. There's been other kinds of uh, suffering as well in SLE Church. We've had people who have suffered from long-term infertility, um, stillbirths and, and miscarriages, the kind of silent things that people don't know about. We've had people with broken relationships, uh, marriage, when the children come, um, estranged children. We've had long-term unemployment. Uh, we've had uh, all kinds of manners of grief and sufferings in that sort of sphere of life. Not to mention also the grief and suffering of being Christian. The experience of being Christian isn't easy, and it's getting harder, isn't it, in our society today, 
that people in their workplaces and their schools are being persecuted, feeling the, the mocking and the, the need to cower back uh, because of the societal pressures, because of family pressures. And we have, as, as you have heard before, a lot of international students, and they come and find Jesus and find faith here in Australia. And, and one of the big worries is how do they tell their parents that they've come to church, they've come to Jesus, they want to get baptized, they want to live for Christ. And some of the holidays have been terrible experiences for them as they've gone home and then have been abused for their faith. And others of us grieve and suffer in our walk with Jesus every day, for we battle against sin, don't we? For those who, for those who take seriously our, our faith in Jesus and our desire to walk with the Lord, we suffer the grief of, why can't I repent? or some of the daily sins, the big and the small sins of my life. And we grieve that, that burden of not being able to change in the way that we would want to, that God would want us to. And SLE Church, there is a face and a name to every single one of these things. This is not just a list that I found on the internet. These are real people in real situations. And I'm sure, as I mentioned that, and even though I don't know you, that in that list, one or more of those things are the burdens in your life. They're the griefs and sufferings in your life. Now, it's kind of a funny thing that 16 years later, the, the, the first sermon I get to preach to you guys is such a heavy, not very cheery topic. Uh, but I'm glad I'm able to speak on this topic. It is such a big part of the experience of life just in this world and our life as Christians. And I appreciate being able to bring God's word to you about this. Because I know in these times, many of us ask, maybe all of us ask, what is God doing about this? Right? Where is God in all this? What does God's word say? And I want to be able to bring a word from God to us about this. Now, it's a huge topic. Grief and suffering is a huge topic. And I won't be able to cover uh, everything, obviously, in one short sermon. But I hope to be able to make a start on this and make some of the big points that I hope will bring us great comfort. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you're a seeker, I'm so glad that you put aside a couple of hours on your Sunday morning to come along to church. I want to especially welcome you if you're here as an unbeliever, as a seeker. Uh, and this topic of suffering is a, is, a, is a big stumbling block for many unbelievers, right? Uh, you might ask, why is there so much suffering in this world? Uh, if there is uh, so much suffering and pain, how can God be good, and how can God be God? Right? That's one of the big questions that seekers ask. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I hope that you'll hear some answers to these big questions today, and I hope you'll see that the truths of the Christian faith make sense intellectually, but more importantly, that it satisfies your soul, that it makes sense in your brain, but that it also gives you comfort in your heart. I hope that you'll see that Jesus is worth believing in today. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, then this morning is an opportunity to grow in our faith. As we come to understand more the place of suffering in God's world, and more than understanding, also to have our hearts warmed, to have our assurances built up, to be able to make sense of life, and to find satisfaction in the gospel again. And that is my hope and prayer. Let me pray. Uh, to that end as we come into God's word. And let's pray. A gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks so often, so truly and so satisfyingly 
about the pains, the griefs, and sufferings that we experience in this world and in our lives, both just as people who live on this planet as well as those who are believers suffering for the sake of Christ. You know our hearts, you know our lives, you know what we go through in a way that no one else in this room does. And we thank you that in your knowledge of us, you bring us knowledge of yourself and of your word. And I pray that this morning your word would speak truly and powerfully into our lives, whether it is we are seeking after you or whether it is that we're believers needing to be built up in our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so the question we have to ask this morning is, what does God say to us in our grief? Right? What explanation does God give us for all the grief and suffering that we face and feel? What comfort and assurance can God really offer us? Now, I phrase this sermon as, a, what would Jesus say right, to the grieving? Anyway, we're trying to reconstruct, right? If Jesus were to come here and, and give us his word, if we were to look in scriptures and see what Jesus would say to us, what would he say? And the first thing that I think Jesus would say is that he wouldn't say anything at all if he were here. I think that he'd sit with us where we are, right next to you, and there's lots of empty seats around, right next to us, and he'd put his arm around us and he'd weep with us in our griefs. That's the image I want us to start off with, right? If Jesus were here speaking to us, well, the first thing he would do is he wouldn't say anything. I think he would put his arms around us and he would weep with us and grieve with us in our suffering. You see, it's so easy when we ask questions of God in our grief that we make it all intellectual and philosophical. Right? That God is simply an idea right, that we have to analyze and pull apart. Right? But God isn't just an idea. He's a real and personal being. God is love. God is full of compassion and mercy. And the picture of the Son of God on earth is a picture of a man, uh, a God, who is grieving with us in our grief. If you go back to the beginning of Scriptures, in, in Genesis 6, we already see this, this personal nature of God right, in our grief. So let's see if I can get this going. Okay. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Right, we see God's grief as he looks upon mankind, looks upon the brokenness of this world. God doesn't just stand apart and, and judge. It grieved him to his heart to see the brokenness, the grief and the suffering in his life. We see Jesus' heart breaking when he saw how lost his people were. Matthew 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was stirred up within his soul for the lostness of his people. And of course, how can we forget Jesus in John 11? Many of you know the story. Sorry. How do you blank this? There we go. Jesus. There's a... Are we fighting here? Okay, good. All good. All right. I thought there was, a, there was a problem in our relationship. No, okay, it's all good. We, we, saw, we, we see Jesus, right? The famous story in John 11. You know John 11? At the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Uh, and, and, and I hope you'll never forget that scene. Not because you, you forget what it means, but what it feels like as he comes to this tomb of his friend in the face of death, and he's deeply distressed. 
and he's crying. Right? The shortest verse in the entire Bible is emotion, right? Jesus wept. Our suffering and grief breaks Jesus' heart, and he weeps with us in our grief. Now, I really want to start with this point because I want us to engage with a personal God. Right? Don't, don't come analyzing God and, and pulling him apart as an idea. In our grief and suffering, engage with a personal God. Never allow these big questions about life and about God be merely a cold, intellectual one. Whether you're a seeker or whether you're a believer in your grief, don't just analyze in a cold, impersonal way. Engage with a personal God. And know that God cares deeply about our grief and all the things that cause our grief. And indeed, we see that with Jesus, he enters into our grief. Now, as much as Jesus connects with us and joins us in our grief, Jesus would also say then, maybe surprisingly, the first thing I think he'd say is, I am in control. Right? I am in control. Now, when we hear Jesus say, I'm in control, now, it sounds very comforting, doesn't it? It is comforting. But I think Jesus saying, I'm in control, is also very confronting. It's both comforting and confronting when Jesus tells us that he is in control. Now, for many people, the presence of suffering is proof of the absence of God. Yes, you've heard that, right? The presence of suffering is proof of the absence of God. Yeah, the, the, the logic goes is that if there is really an all-powerful and all-good God, then why is there so much evil and suffering? And there is great emotional power to this question, especially when you're neck deep in grief. Now, as we come, looking, uh, as we come to God looking for answers, perhaps even demanding answers, it's easy for us to stand in judgment over God, to think that God owes it to us to give us a full uh, and satisfying answer. Now, in some of the big grief books and passages of the Bible, uh, we get to hear the first-hand account of how God responds to the presence of suffering. And, and when you look in those passages, what God actually does say actually is very confronting when he explains the presence of suffering. Right? It, it surprises us and it confronts us. Now, we're going to spend a few minutes in Job. I'm going to try and summarize Job in like two minutes. Okay? So, um, we're going to look at Job. Uh, because it's the most famous of all grieving books. Right? If you, were, you want to think about grieving, often that's where we go. Right? So let's go to it. Right? Job. Now, I'm going to put all these passages up on the screen, but really, I, I hope you jot down all these Bible references, and you can check it out for yourself, right? because you need to check scriptures for yourself. Now, let me start at the beginning. Right? Job is introduced as an uh, almost superhuman godly guy. Right? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. First verse of Job, right? An almost superhumanly godly guy, which makes the immense suffering that he will face later on very surprising, right? But we're given a behind-the-scenes perspective that Job never gets, all right? And there's this uh, scene in heaven where Satan approaches God saying, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? So you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you 
to your face. Right? Touch it in a bad way, right? Now, so God gives Satan permission right, to find the answer to this challenge. Uh, and Job gets put through the ringer, doesn't he? As you read on, there's loss of property, then loss of children, and then loss of health, leaving him an entirely broken man. Now, why has this happened to Job? It's a big question about Job. Now, why has this happened to Job? Now, Job is trying to figure this out. And along come some worthless friends <coughs> who, who tell him that it must be because he's done something wrong. Right? That's what they say, right? You've done something wrong. Maybe you've done a lot wrong to deserve all this punishment, all this suffering from God. Except, of course, we know that this isn't the case from verse 1, right? Job doesn't deserve this. Right? doesn't deserve this. He hasn't done anything wrong. And, and Job knows this himself. But he also knows that God is good and that God is just. And so Job is in this dilemma, right? This crisis. And he asks God, what's going on? Can you please tell me why I am suffering in this way? Now, when God finally does speak to Job, it is not what Job, not what Job, nor we are hoping and expecting to hear. I'm not sure if you've ever read God's answer to Job's question, but this is what he says. This is God speaking to Job, right? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Right? He goes on for a couple more chapters like this, right? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did this? God reminds Job over and over again that he alone is the creator of the world and that he alone is the powerful ruler over all that Job sees and experiences in this life. God alone is sovereign, is God's answer. You kind of think, what kind of answer is that? Right? Why am I suffering? I am sovereign. I am in control, is God's answer. Now, all Job can say in response is this, right? chapter 42. Job saying to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, all that Job can do after meeting face to face with the all-powerful, all-ruling creator God is to fall on his face and worship and realize that he shouldn't have questioned God because God is so much bigger than he. Now, Job never finds out what happened in heaven. He's never told that Satan challenged God about Job and that God was so confident in Job. He never finds that out. He never gets to find out the reason for his suffering. None, absolutely none, of his questions were answered. All that he is told is that God is in control. All that happened was that he met God and that was enough for Job to realize that he can trust God without all and even any of the answers. Is that confronting to you? 
Is that confronting? I, I feel confronted by that, doesn't it? Now, over and over again in scriptures, it's not the only place that God tells us, tells those who are wondering about suffering and grief and evils in this world, that God is in control. Let me show you another couple of passages. Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentations 3. Is it not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad, good and bad come? The suffering doesn't show that God is out of control. In fact, scriptures are clear that God is in total control. Total control, which is why even suffering is under His control. I am in control is God's consistent response to people crying out in grief. It should comfort us, but it should also confront us. It's comforting to know that suffering and pain aren't a result of God going, uh, oops, you know, I didn't see that coming, right? It's not a result of God going, mm, sorry, all right, out of my hands, can't be helped. No, it's, comfort it's comforting to know that God's in control but it's also confronting. You know, we, we ask God, you, you mean God, under full control, you're actively allowing and bringing suffering? That's confronting, isn't it? Why, right? Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? And that's the way I think Jesus will go next, right? After having told us that he is in control, that there is suffering and that he's in control, control of that, he tells us next, why there is suffering, why there is grief. And Jesus would tell us that grief is present. Grief is our experience because of sin. But the Bible isn't confused, and it isn't uncertain about why our world grieves in pain and suffering. Jesus would say to us with crystal clarity, there is grief because there is sin. There is grief because there is sin. And this is the second confronting truth that Jesus would speak to us about. There is grief because there is sin. God has bent this world out of shape as an act of judgment. And that's what you heard in your first reading this morning, Genesis 3. Let me read a bit of it out to you now again. Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, in the very opening pages of God's Word, we are told the origin of the story of sin, right? The origin of sin. It's the same story that is played out over and over, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, centuries and millennia to today. The same story of sin over and over again that we simply will not let God be in control. The one who is creator, the one who is sovereign, we will not let him rule our lives. We will not live God's way. And as we reject God, 
God responds, right, to our rejection with just judgment. He responds to our rejection with just judgment. He allows us to experience the sinful and destructive effects of our sin. And more than that, He actively brings calamity in response to our sin. It's an act of judgment. But the language of Genesis 3 is that of cursing, right? God cursing, bringing judgment actively onto this sinful, broken world and sinful, broken people. Now, this doesn't mean, right, let me be clear, that every single instance of suffering that we face is a direct result of some sin that we have personally committed. Okay, you gotta, that's just the Job's friend's problem, right? There is not this one-to-one correspondence. I sin like this, I suffer like that, right? It's not like that. The story of Job, right, is one of many stories showing us this. We are not to lead to wrong conclusions like Job's friends. Now, Jesus talks about this, right, in, in, in Luke 13. That's our second Bible reading today, Luke 13. To show that while there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between our sin, personal sin, and suffering that we experience, every instance of grief and suffering in our world is meant to remind us of this sin problem. I mean, let me read Luke 13 again, right? It's an interesting story that Jesus told, right? Uh, Luke 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans, right? This group of people whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That is, they were brutally killed by, uh, by Pilate, okay? This group of people. And Jesus answered them, do you think, sorry, um, uh, yeah, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Right? Because that's the assumption. These Galileans must have been really bad for them to face such a brutal end to their lives. But Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he goes on, right? All these, another group, right? All these 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, that is this group of 18 who died by some tragic accident. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But Jesus is clear that these tragic deaths was not directly connected to the level of their sinfulness. Were they more sinful than anybody else that they faced such a tragic end? Jesus says no. But instead, as he often does, he turns the conversation around. He turns it around and confronts every listener. But I tell you, you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Don't worry about how sinful they were. Worry about how sinful you are. Worry about how sinful you are. You see, not all suffering is directly connected to individual sinfulness, but every tragedy, every suffering, and every grief that we experience in life is a reminder of sin. And the brokenness of this world, the sin and the brokenness within each and every single one of us. It confronts us with that truth. It's in light of this that Jesus speaks the gospel to us. Jesus will tell us, I came to deal with sin. I'm in control, right? Calamity, darkness, and pain is within my active judgment, 
and allowing of this world to suffer because of sin. Sin is be- uh, grief is because of sin. That's all true, and it's serious. But Jesus says, I came to deal with sin. And if Jesus comes to deal with sin, then he comes to deal with grief. Right? He, he comes not to fix the symptoms of the problem. He comes to fix the root cause of all of this pain that we feel in life. Now, I know you've been learning about this. I had a good chat with Iggy about the sermon series in Mark that you've been going through over the last month or so. Uh, and, and chapter after chapter, you've seen Jesus' ministry, isn't it? Healing after healing, exorcism after exorcism, even forgiving of sins, right? In the, in the, para, in the, in the story of the paralytic, back in Mark chapter 4, uh, Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus show his authority, isn't it? To forgive sins and overcome sin's dreadful effects in our lives and in our world. And in the next few months, as you get to the end of Mark, you will learn that Jesus comes as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He bears it all on himself. And since sin is the root of all grief, then when Jesus takes away sin, he takes away grief. Jesus gives us some beautiful pictures, right, of how this will look. And we start at the end, right? Revelation 21 is really, what is the effect of Jesus taking away sin? What is this glorious future, sinless future we have to look forward to? Revelation 21, have a look, right? Beautiful passage, very familiar. Let's just read a couple of verses from it. Behold, because sin is removed, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I remember to the beginning of the story, we said no to God, and we were cast out into this broken, sinful, suffering world. But because sin has been removed, then we dwell with God again. And since sin has been removed, then there is no more death to grieve over. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering. And every tear that we've ever shed will be wiped away. Every broken heart will be mended. Because Jesus has taken away sin. Now, one more passage, another beautiful. I'm I'm pulling out all the big guns here, right? Romans 8. I want us to really bask in this, right? Because Jesus has died and risen again, this is what Jesus says, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed... um, For your sake we have been killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, knowing all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As you go through the list, basically what you see is, think about any and every reason for grief. Right? Think about it. Consider the grief of sin within, where the voices inside cripple us with guilt, removed because of Jesus. Think about those who oppose us in our faith, in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our families. Because of Jesus, that grief will be removed. Think about the fear of judgment before the judgment throne of God. That will be removed. Consider any and every reason for grief. Jesus says, I have dealt with sin, so I have dealt with grief. Jesus is the only one who can tell us that. He is the only one who has brought us forgiveness of sins that allows us to say that. Which is why Jesus says to us, the final point for this morning is trust in me. Right? Trust in me. He calls us who grieve. He calls us who suffer, uh, who suffer in this world to face up to the reality of sin and see and trust him as the only savior. Right? See him and trust him as our only savior. Now, grief and suffering, they are not good things in themselves, right? But they have a very good purpose. They are not good things in themselves, but they have a very good purpose. Now, many of you, I, I think, know Uncle Philip and Auntie Milan. Who has ever enjoyed their cooking at a YF Salt CIA camp or something? All right, some of you. Oh, man, you're missing out. You should invite them. They're still fit enough to be able to cook for your camps, right? They might do it. Uncle Philip, Auntie Milan, uh, they're part of our congregation at SLE. Uh, they've been around for a long time. Uh, about a year ago, Uncle Philip was driving back from his fish and chip shop in Tweed Heads. Uh, they sold that now, but they used to drive, right, from Carindale uh, to uh, Tweed Heads every day, right, about an hour plus drive. And Uncle Philip was driving back, and then suddenly, he started feeling like his head was very foggy. And his arms were suddenly feeling really weak. And it was about halfway along the Pacific Highway. And then finally he got home, and he didn't even realize how he got home. Right? Anyway, he went straight to bed, and he woke up the next day and he couldn't speak. You know what happened to Uncle Philip? He had a stroke. Right? He had a minor stroke. But praise be to God that it was minor enough that he managed to get home in this fugue and he managed to get home and have a sleep, and Auntie Milan rushed him to the hospital that next morning to find there was a ticking time bomb, right, in his arteries. But thank God for symptoms, right? Because those symptoms alerted him to a bigger problem, a ticking time bomb that would be fatal if it wasn't discovered. And that's kind of what grief and suffering is. It's symptoms that we thank God for because it reminds us, it points us to it alerts us to, it's the alarm bells ringing that there's a problem of sin that needs to be dealt with. Purpose is there to show that we need forgiveness, that we need to come to Jesus. As Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 13, grief and suffering, in whatever shape and form that we experience it in this world, in our lives, it should lead us to the confront the reality that we're all sinners in need of repentance. And for us to think about whether we put our trust 
in our only Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I urge you all to not let grief and suffering go to waste? Do not let grief and suffering go to waste. Don't misinterpret these symptoms. Don't mis misdiagnose the problem of sin and suffering as a problem of God. Right? That He's not good or that He's out of control. Don't misdiagnose the problem. That is God's problem. God in full control allows and brings suffering in order that we might come to the right diagnosis. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And what a Savior we have in Jesus. I'm, I hope I'm okay to share this, but since Uncle Paul and the Daisy are here, I, I want to mention them as an example of not letting grief and suffering go to waste. And they have been so keen, as a result of Philbert's passing, to share their faith with people around them. Auntie Daisy is always asking me, are there new international students you can invite to my house, right, so that I can speak to them and share my experience of suffering and grief and tell them about Jesus? I love that, right? It's, it's not letting grief and suffering go to waste. It's painful, and there were many tears shed, but it, it, it built the resolve in that family to show people Jesus. Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, and you really don't get this, I would love for you to speak to me about this afterwards. Now, speak to the friend who brought you here. If you're not quite getting understanding this whole sin-suffering business and why you have to believe in Jesus, please talk to someone before you leave church today. It's really, really important. But if you're a believer here this morning, can I urge you to keep trusting in Jesus, especially in your grief and suffering. Keep trusting in Jesus. Grief and suffering has a way of beating us down. It's like a crossroads moment, isn't it? Whenever we face profound grief and suffering in our lives, we can go in two directions. We can either walk away and stop trusting in Jesus, or we can find in Him our only hope. If you're a believer here this morning, go towards hope. Go towards a, a greater trust. Now, can I also urge you that there's one more thing that Jesus asks us to trust about. Right? This is for believers, right, mainly here. Jesus calls us to trust Him that grief and suffering has a good purpose in a believer's life. Trust Jesus when He says that grief and suffering grows our faith. Last passage for today from James, okay? I just want to end with this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, suffering tests our faith, right? It's the strains that is needed for our gains. Anyone look out here? You guys look fit, right? It's the strains that is needed to produce gains. And the gains is that of grip strength. That's what steadfastness is, isn't it? Holding tighter and tighter to Jesus. The strains of suffering and grief brings us the gains of a tighter grip strength in holding on to Jesus. To be found clinging on to Christ to the very end means receiving the crown of eternal life. As I mentioned before, uh, Anna Wong, a dear sister of ours, passed away about two months ago. 
He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, about two and a half years ago now. And uh, she was given 2% chance of living more than 12 months. And that was kind of her odds. Uh, many prayed for the miracle of healing, as you do, right? as we do as a Christian community. She was given uh, a short time to live, uh, but she actually ended up living for about two over years, two and a half years. And that is a miracle in itself, to have that extra time. But I spoke to her husband, Hien, right? Hien, uh, just after Anna died, and he said to me, why did Anna get that extra time? Right? We were trying, uh, reminiscing and wondering, why, why did God give Anna those two and a half years? And definitely he saw that it was a blessed time for family. The family really reconnected because the, Hien worked uh, in, in Kuwait, and she was here with the kids, and they all kind of reconnected uh, during her illness. Uh, but even more than that, he saw that those two and a half years deeply strengthened Anna's faith. Now, we were told a story at Anna's wake. Right? Anna would uh, religiously walk up Mount Kutha once or twice a week, all the way through her illness. Uh, and there were times when she was walking up Mount Kutha where the pain was so excruciating, where her breath was so short that she had to sit down pretty much every few meters. But her friends would testify that as she sat down, she would have a smile on her face, thanking God that she could still walk. Thanking God that she can still breathe. And thanking God that Jesus was her savior. Those two cancer-filled years, as many of us visited her in her home, not a single one of us ever heard anything less than a deep and abiding trust in her savior. Instead, as she got worse and worse, as cancer just destroyed her body, she almost grew in faith and almost radiated with the steadfastness that many of us admired and respected. We thought we were going there to comfort her, to encourage her, but all of us walked away being encouraged by her instead. She responding to suffering like Anna, with a deep joy, a living hope, a determination to be grateful to Jesus is what trusting in Jesus looks like. Real life example. She's not the only one. Like I mentioned, Uncle Paul and Daisy. I'm sure Debbie as well in your midst. I'm sure there are many in your community who are examples, living testimonies of a steadfast and growing faith in the light of grief and suffering. Learn from these dear brothers and sisters as they live out the Christian faith. I don't know what your life has been like here at CPE Church, and I hope it hasn't been as traumatic as what it has been for us. But one of the great things about God allowing suffering in our community is that it allows us to grow in our trust in Jesus. I want to finish this morning by reading three verses from a very old hymn from John Newton called Be Gone, Unbelief. And maybe one day you can learn this song. It's a little bit hard to sing. There's a new version of it. But three verses I want to read out for us. Be gone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By faith let me wrestle with God in the storm, and help me, my Savior, the faith to adorn. Why should I complain of want or distress? Temptation or pain, he told me no less. The heirs of salvation I know from his word, through much tribulation, must follow their Lord. Since all that I meet will work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. 
though painful at present, will cease before long. And then, oh, how glorious the conqueror's song. Please join me as I pray. Oh, sovereign God, we thank you that today we are confronted with the reality that you really are sovereign and fully in control. At the same time, we are also comforted by the fact that you are so good and so loving in giving us the only solution that we can possibly have to the problem of sin that is brought upon grief. As you look upon us, you know what we are going through in life, and you know what we will go through in life in the future. For those who are seeking after you here today, who are not yet believers, who, who aren't sure whether you're real or whether they can put their trust in Jesus, I pray that you'll help them to diagnose the symptoms of grief and suffering in this world in the right way. To see it not as a problem with you being out of control or you not being good, but to see it as a, as a result of the root problem of sin in our lives, the root cause of sin in our world brought apart by our rebellion and our turning away from you. And as they experience grief and suffering, rather than turning away from you, they will come to you and come to see the beauty and joy and life and forgiveness that is found in Jesus. I pray for their souls. I also pray for the brothers and sisters here. I thank you for this community. And I thank you that in a community like this, no doubt there has been much grief and suffering in many and various ways. I pray that there has been an experience of comfort in knowing your word, in being drawn closer to Jesus through these experiences. I pray that the experience has been encouragement to others. But no doubt there are those as well who, because of grief and suffering and troubles and tribulations in life, are drifting away from you, losing their grip on Jesus. For these brothers and sisters, I pray for them. Please help them to come to a fresh and enduring faith in Jesus to see Him as the only Savior, the only hope, to rejoice at a life that is to come that is without death and without suffering, without tears, and to see that that happens as we continue to cling on